Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everybody. It is means It is time for opinion, the happiest hour on the internet. We are so excited to introduce you tonight to Chris Swan and John Hart. And I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. And I'm Patty Callahan Henry. I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Kristen Harmel. And this is Friends in Fiction, for New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support independent bookstores. As I mentioned, our guests for the evening are Chris Swan and John Hart, both writers of heart-pounding thrillers with deeply felt characters and vivid settings. They will talk to us about making the move from other careers to writing, how they balance page-turning plots with vividly drawn characters, and where they find their inspiration. And as you know, we continue to encourage you to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own friendsandfictionbookshop.org page, where you can find Chris and John's latest books and books by the four of us and our past guests at a discount. And of course, at bookshop.org, a portion of each sale through the Friends and Fiction shop goes to support indie bookstores. And it also helps support this show. So if you enjoy watching, this is a great way to support our guests, independent bookstores, and of course, Friends in Fiction, all at the same time. And speaking of supporting Friends in Fiction, have you heard that we are talking turkey with Butterball? They are partnering with us for November and December. Hello. We're very excited about this because it, it means not only do we get to slap Butterball logos on people left and right, but we get to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the famed Turkey Talk line all month long. Make sure to join us on our Talking Turkey with Butterball after show tonight. We will be talking about the history of the Turkey Talk line and talking about some of our favorite turkey recipes. And we also want to remind you about our brand new Friends and Fiction Reading Journal in partnership with our favorite Oxford Exchange. And it makes the perfect gift, even if you're buying it for yourself. One for me, one for you, one for me, one for you. And for the first time, I am going to finally write down the books I'm reading and what I think. Because you forget. You look and... You say, oh my gosh, what did I, I can't, and then it, it'll be, it'll be like a reading diary. Did y'all keep a diary when you were little? Yes. You know, it's a lock Sporadically. I did. The lock and key. Yeah. Yeah. I had a little key and everything. Anyway, with a beautiful blue linen cover and plenty of space to make all your reading goals come true, you should get yourself one. Yes. And of course, we want to wish a very happy Hanukkah this week to all of you who celebrate. Um, We love seeing your photos and all of the happy celebrations going on. So it's just such a great time of year. And we have to wish a very happy birthday to our amazing behind the scenes tech guru, 
Sean. Happy oh, birthday, Sean. Sean. No, it's, it's not, I think it's tomorrow. It's, it's not today. Tomorrow. It's tomorrow. Yes. Oh. Yes. That's awesome. And we also want to give a huge shout out <laughs> and a thank you to our managing director, our own Meg Walker, our podcast host and friend, Ron Block, and of course, Publishers Weekly for the beautiful feature about friends and fiction and this fabulous community. If you haven't read that story yet, or if you don't get Publishers Weekly, I can't imagine why everyone doesn't. <laughs> it's on our Facebook page today. So check it out. Okay, so now we want to introduce you to our main event, our wonderful guests, Chris Swan and John Hart. Chris Swan is both a novelist and a high school English teacher. For his work, he has been a Townsend Prize finalist, long listed for the Southern Book Prize, and twice been a finalist for Georgia Author of the Year Award. That's awesome. Chris earned his PhD in creative writing from Georgia State University. He lives with his wife and two sons in Atlanta, where he is the English department chair at Holy Innocence Episcopal School. His new novel, A Fire in the Night, was released in September, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution included it on a list of the 10 must-read Southern books this fall. Now let's talk about John Hart. He is the author of six New York Times bestsellers, including The King of Lies, Down River, and The Last Child. His novels have been translated into 30 languages and can be found in over 70 countries. I get so intimidated when I read all these things that these people have done. <laughs> He's won the Barry Award. I know. <laughs> I know. He won the Barry Award, the Center Independent Booksellers Award for Fiction. The Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award, the Southern Book Prize, and the North Carolina Award for Literature. He's also the only author to ever win the best novel, Edgar, for two consecutive novels. Wow. A former defense attorney and stockbroker, John lives on a farm in Virginia, where he now writes full time. Amazing. All right, Sean, let's bring him on. <laughs> like, we're going we're gonna to have the graphic covering your faces all night. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Good to see Hello. you guys. Hello, ladies. This Hello. is so fun. Thank you so much for having us. Can, can I just say what what a wonderful group you are and what a great thing you've put together with this podcast and this internet presence. I mean, four friends coming together to talk about what they love and what they do. It's really remarkable. And I, I think I think it's genius. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much for saying that. Well, thank yeah. you for having us. I know Chris feels the same way, I'm sure. Absolutely. I have no idea how you all are able to do this. Families, and oh, by the way, write best-selling books at the same time. <laughs> well, Doing something right. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Well, we're so excited to have you to talk about your incredibly exciting new books, A Fire in the Night and The Unwilling. So to kick us off, John, can you tell us a little bit about The Unwilling? Yeah, so The Unwilling is um, it's a little bit different for me. I try to do something special in terms of a personal challenge with every book that I write. And um, let me put a little context on that. The Unwilling, for instance, is the first novel I've ever written that's set entirely in the past. So I've, I've written novels before that may have had a flashback or two. But this novel is set entirely in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1972. So it's kind of a shadow of the Vietnam War uh, story. It's not a war novel. It's not about the war. It's about the impact of the war. Um, I like to write about small communities, which Charlotte was in 1972, believe it or not, um, and people that are impacted by 
bad deeds or violence and, and how those ripples spread outwards. And so um, it was a real exciting decision, I guess, to just say, look, you know, I, I want to do something I've ever done before. I remember 1972 pretty clearly. I mean, I was seven. So that's before we start forgetting things. And I, I remember older kids that were afraid of going to Vietnam and those yeah. who had lost siblings in Vietnam. And so I really wanted to try to capture the zeitgeist. And I actually kind of hate that word zeitgeist, but sometimes <laughs> the zeitgeist of 1970s, the early 70s, what was going on in the country, what was going on in Vietnam and and but but wrap those around, um, you know, kind of a typical John Hart crime novel um, about decent people caught up in horrible events. Um, and, and just for the record, to kind of help you understand, I, I grew up just north of Charlotte, 30 or 40 miles away. Christy and I are from the same town. Um, so so to me, it was just like I want to make this personal and I want to dive back into those memories and try to deliver an experience that feels like 1972. That's awesome. That's an amazing book. All right, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about A Fire in the Night? Sure, I'd be happy to. I will say, John, I read The Unwilling. It's fantastic. All y'all should go out and get a copy. Um, A Fire in the Night is uh, the story of Nick Anthony, who is a professor of medieval studies, and he is mourning the loss of his wife, Ellie, from cancer the year before. And he's retreated to their mountain house, in Cashers, North Carolina, and just wants to wall out the world and be alone with his grief. Uh, this is a novel, so it doesn't stay that way. For very long. <laughs> <laughs> he's interrupted by a, there's a sheriff's deputy shows up at his door because he has no phone because he's cut that off as well. And the deputy has sad news. His brother Jay and his brother Jay's wife have died in house fire in Tampa. And they think it's an accident. And they're still investigating. And oh, by the way, has Nick seen his niece? And Nick's niece, he has no idea. He hasn't talked to his brother in 20 years. He has a 16-year-old niece named Annalise. She's missing. Guess who shows up on Nick's porch? Uh, Who has a slightly different story? That yes, her parents died, but it wasn't an accident. And she saw the people who set the fire and killed her parents. And she thinks they might be chasing her. And Nick, you find out, turns out to be a bit more than just a retired professor of medieval studies. I'm going to leave you with that. <laughs> I love awesome. it. And, and I have to tell you, both of you, you know, titles, we talk about titles a lot here. Your titles are amazing. The Unwilling, Fire in the Night. I, I, wish, I, could, I wish those kind of titles just came to me mm-hmm. like that. They're great. They don't come. They, they don't come, Patty. You know that. I mean, you, you okay. titles, man. I mean, titles are hard. T- titles are like so hard. So hard. So hard. I had three novels where I knew the title on page one and I, and I can name them. And, and every other novel has been a nightmare of hundreds of trials. Hundreds. And, and committee conversations. And I don't ever like, I don't ever want to ever again <laughs> Pick a title by committee, but once you open that box, everybody's got an opinion, and then now now it's politics, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> titles are tough. Titles are really. And then tough. the words quit making sense. It's like you've talked yeah. about it so many times. You're like, I don't yeah, even know if I liked that one. <laughs> Wait, yeah. what, is that? Why, what are fire we? What, or what, a fire in the night? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I okay. think it's great because it's evocative, you know, it's yeah. relevant. 
I, what I would like to see in a title, and I've accomplished this on only a few books, is someone buys the book, reads the book, and understands in the last page or two what the title means. Yeah, that's a smart thing to do, and, I, and I've only achieved it a few times. I wish I could do it with every book. We all do something that somebody closes that last page and says, "I get it." Wow, the yes. title like, works. Oh. What a good title. Yeah, yeah, that's hard I, to do. I just did that with a book I finished a draft on uh, a couple of weeks ago that I'm working on right now. But otherwise, yeah, same. Trying to find a title that's evocative, that paints an image maybe, or that just, it seems to fit thematically somehow without yeah. being too, too intellectual or too. Or too vague and flowery. Exactly. Have, they're great titles. Well, yeah. and you, you have to, you have to go for the, I mean, look, let's be honest. You have to try to find a commercial title. My publishers yeah, love that term, a commercial yeah. title that yeah. actually captures the essence of the novel and is meaningful to the reader. And so that's really the challenge. How do you capture the essence of the novel in a very few words and, uh, and do it in a manner that is going to sell the book? I mean, it's tough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. And it doesn't sound like someone else's. That's exactly. Very you're like, this sounds great. And you're like, and there were three books last year with the same. No. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I, I wrote a book yeah. two years ago called The Grapes of Wrath, and they told me it was done. I was like, <laughs> I understand. We want to call your next book No Way Home. And I said, that sounds great. But I'm a Marvel fan. And that's the not title of the next Spider-Man movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so everyone's been a thing. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's a, probably not a good idea. I'm like, that's yeah. 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 Okay, we got off on a title tangent. <laughs> I remember when we first met. And we met because of your wife, Kathy. Um, yeah. I was friends with Kathy. And we met. And you were finishing your first novel. And you mm -hmm. were trying to find a way to publish it. And you asked me if I would read some of it. And I was like, oh, no, man. Like, I feel <laughs> like Kathy. And what am I going to say? And Because um, undoubtedly the book is terrible. <laughs> Why do you think I asked you, Patty? I was like, I, she, she can't say no. She's beholden. And, you know, and I read it. And within a couple pages, I wrote back to both of you and was like, yes, yes. <laughs> and so awesome. here you are. And now, in addition to being a novelist, we are all fascinated. We talked about it off screen by the fact that you are also a high school English teacher. So, yes. and you have a PhD in creative writing. So obviously literature is a passion of yours. Did you always know you wanted to do both of these things? And after you answer that, how in the living macaroni and cheese do you... <laughs> balance these two careers teaching about writing and writing well, for the for the second one i, I sleep is overrated um, <laughs> for, the, for the first no, i i knew i wanted to be a writer when i was 13 i had a social wow. studies teacher who was frog marching us to the revolutionary war and Wow. said, we're going to have a project, boys and girls. And we all went, because uh, it was all going to be like a book report on Johnny Tremaine or a poster on how a musket worked. And I didn't want to do any of that. Yeah. And she said, no, no, I've got some new things this year. And one of them was to write a uh, diary. And in parentheses said, or for the boys, a journal, because this was 1983. And not many guys were going to be like, yeah, diary. <laughs> a diary. Journal sounds manly, like I hewed it out of wood or something. Stone with my hand. You, uh, a journal from the point of view of, of a fictitious person who has witnessed or participated in some event in the Revolutionary War. And I said, I'm doing that. 
And my friends thought I was insane. And I'm like, I'm not doing the musket poster project because every <laughs> kid in the room is going to do that. And she goes alphabetical. My last name's Swan. I'm not going to be the ninth guy. It's like, it's a musket. You pour the flask into the thing. Like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and, and I made up some Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett kind of frontier woodsman that didn't like this whole taxation without representation. So he's going to grab his musket, which I knew at this point very well how they worked. And I'm going to go fight for the... And he participated. I had to do research. He was clever. She made us... We had to go do research, right? Yes. I was like, did anything happen in the South in the Revolutionary War? Everything seems to have happened in Boston and New York. And yeah, there was a battle outside of Charlotte, Battle of Kings Mountain. And oh. I researched that. And my guy was a hero who killed the British commander. And wow. it was it was a whole lot of fun. And I, my classmates, um, friends were like, this is this is pretty good, which for 13 year old boys is high praise. Yes, it is. And I thought <laughs> I could write. I was like, huh. I, and I thought I, I could I could do this, but even at thirteen, I'm like, what do what do what do writers do? Yeah. Like I didn't think they just write a book and go, well, that's done. Now I want to go, you know, hang out in Hilton Head, and maybe in a couple of years I'll write another book. Like, all might. That's exactly what we do, right? Yeah, every year after our lives, right. yeah. But then, I, so I thought, what do I do? And and I looked in the back of books that a lot of people teach, and I thought, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> That wow. was that that was my entire like career counseling. Like everyone's like, what do you want to do when you I'm like, I'm gonna be a teacher and write books. That's amazing. Wow. And I, really? I, and I and I thought teaching would be a way to pay the rent. And I stumbled into a career that I love. Uh, and it's awesome. been I've been very fortunate and they've been my school's been very uh very kind and supportive of me. So that's so that's cool. Yeah, I'm lucky. Yeah, you are lucky if you get to do what you love to do. Yes. And they throw some money at you. <laughs> yeah, every once in a while. <laughs> and I have my summers free, and it's when I get most of my, I get to where I get a lot of my writing done. Yeah. Um, I, was wondering that. I get a head start and get a bunch done. It slows down in the fall, but I've, I've got sort of got a headwind going, and it helps. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for both of you, Chris and John. You know, I'm somebody who sort of writes a, a hybrid kind of a book, a mystery hyphen women's fiction. And I'd love to hear from both of you your thoughts on what distinguishes a thriller from a mystery. Now, John, when you started, were you weren't you strictly categorized as mystery, or have I got that wrong? I'm I'm gonna uh, take sixty seconds, if I may, and just riff on something that Chris said because, sure. like this this hidden writer that comes out in unexpected ways is something yeah. that I've seen in a lot of novelists that I've met over the years. Yeah. I, I was in law school. I'll never forget it. And I was taking a class, uh, I mean, fascinatingly called legal research. And it's about Ooh. basically how the law library works. I mean, oh. that's mm, that's really good, good. stuff. So I had the, the assignment, there were like 50 of us. Here is the legal issue you have to research. Write a five-page paper on how you go into the library and find the answers to this legal issue. It has to be the honestly most dry writing assignment in all of God's good earth. Like yeah. how do you find issues in the law library to resolve this one particular question? So I wrote what turned out to be a 12 page story about all these first year law students that basically went hunger games and started you know, <laughs> killing each other and stealing volumes and hiding volumes. And it was a cool, great thing. And the librarian was so overwhelmed by it. She asked me, could she preserve it? 
under glass <laughs> future law students. I was like, yes, of course. Sure. Preserve it under glass. I'm sorry. I have, I have farm allergies. Um, but my point is like, Chris is talking about discovering when writing is a release and, and a satisfying thing. I mean, I, I had so much fun writing a paper that everybody else in my law school hated writing. Um, so I'm sorry about that segue. Um, no, that's, no, that's, that's a great story. Well, I mean, it, but, but, it's, but it's the truth, right? I mean, all of us that are writers come to it in a different way. And I think that some of it is because we're unhappy with our lives. I mean, I wrote my first novel when I was studying for a master's in accounting at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Okay, don't ask Joe me why I'm there. But I was so unhappy. I would spend 10, 12 hours a day trying to understand this man-made science of accounting that I would stay up from midnight until three in the morning writing fiction to escape. And I did the same thing in law school. And I, I suspect all of you have the same story, right? I mean, it comes out in these unexpected, shocking, wonderful ways. How do we find our ways to being writers? So anyway, I listened to Chris talk about being 13 and writing, you know, this story. I'm like, gosh, I mean, I suspect we all have those yeah. moments, right? I mean, we all have those times in our life. And now I forgot what your question is. Mary okay, well, I'll go back and I'll go back. So I would love to hear from both of you, your thoughts on what distinguishes a thriller from a mystery. Okay. Okay. Fair and question. Also, John, you go first with that. Also, how do you put the thrill in thriller? I want to know that. I need to know that. Hmm. That's like, how do you put, you know, okay. Uh, how do you put the hot and hot sauce? <laughs> That's tough. So the difference between thrillers and mysteries is not something I understood when I started. And I suspect you were a mystery writer to start with, right? I didn't set out to be, I, you know, right? I just, I wanted to tell a story. I mean, and I never know what the plot's going to be. I never know what the twists are going to be. I always start with a character and some emotional drivers that are going to spin them through the story and they will evolve. Right. Because I think we can all agree. Here's what readers should deserve and what they demand is at least two things in a good novel. There's the, the plot arc that pulls them through the pages, but then there's a significant character growth of at least one, two or three of the main characters yeah. so that the people they see at the end of the story are not the same that they met on page one or 20, because that's the personal involvement. Like I'm watching these people, I'm, I'm living their lives I'm seeing them grow and I'm, I'm engaged. Um, so I've never had a plot driven beginning to a novel. I always start with the characters. So mm -hmm. when those early books you were talking about, when I was sort of classified as a mystery writer, it wasn't intentional. I had characters whose story I wanted to tell and I knew what their emotional drivers were. Shame, guilt, rage, fear, loss, what, whatever was at the core of their being and made them so damaged they would have to confront as the story evolved. Right. And so um, I just started writing a story. Seriously. It was that simple. I had a general idea of what I wanted it to, to feel like and a general idea if I wanted these characters made whole or left broken or in prison or free or whatever, hmm. but it was all about how they evolved in the story that I needed to tell to evolve them. Right. So Sometimes that turns out to be a mystery. Sometimes it turns out to be a thriller. I mean, in The Hush, it was kind of a supernatural thriller. I didn't really see that coming. I didn't set out to do that. Um, I'm a grope and hope guy, and you guys could probably understand this. There, there are two kinds of novelists. There are the outliners, which I think are the really smart ones, but maybe intellectually smart, but imaginatively struggling. And then there are the grope and hopers, and the grope and hopers just say, damn, I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to sit at the keyboard and something's going to come. 
and I'm going to figure it out as I go. And, and that's that's what I do. So maybe it's a mystery. Maybe it's a thriller. Maybe it's a family drama or Southern Gothic, you know, or all of those things. I don't really know. Um, I only know that a book works when I get to the end of it and the characters that I've built have reached some sort of um, evolution and conclusion where they're no longer the same. Uh, they've been changed by whatever bad things. And there are bad things. I mean, that's let's yeah. be honest, that's part of it. But who are they at the end of it and how do they respond to these bad things? And is their life intact or destroyed? Um, but the short answer to your question is, I, I think mystery is about, you know, who done it and thrillers are about, you know, why done it or how done it or yeah. how is it going to end? I mean, I, I think there's a lot of different ways you can look at it, but it's a, um, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's the whole damn thing's a mystery. I mean, I, I don't know how it works. I don't know where that just come from. I just start typing and sometimes I erase 30 pages or a whole novel. And sometimes it's just like a day at Disney. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, I think most really good stories have got some kind of element of mystery at the very least, yeah. you know, what's going to happen next. Yeah. Right? Is Hamlet going to get off his butt and take care of his uncle? Is Jane Eyre going to pick Mr. Rochester or St. John Rivers or say, I don't need a man or, or what's, you know, what's going to happen next. Um, I heard a definite like mystery, suspense, thriller, they all blend, but, uh, a catchy definition I heard once was a mystery is about what happened in the past. A thriller is about what's happening right now. Yeah. is what is about to happen. And that's, like that's that. simplistic, but it works. It fits. Yeah. In, yeah. In, I like all, that. They do blend together. I think that, um, you know, and I like if that. you're writing, I, I, I always like stories where things happen and usually yeah. They don't always involve a man with a gun or a woman with a gun, but that can be convenient. Um, they don't always involve violence or tragedy, but those work. And uh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I have a PhD in creative writing. I've gone to, I've been to lots of programs in creative writing and I've heard all the criticisms of them. And a, well, one that I hear a lot is that people with creative writing degrees can write really beautifully about not very much. <laughs> and that's not fair and it's not yeah. really true, but there's a tiny bit of truth to it in that you often get taught how to write a really pretty sentence. But if you're going to write anything that approaches genre, like that's, uh, it's almost like that's embarrassing. And again, this is a broad <laughs> generalization. And I was like, I, I remember having a, a classmate of mine was writing and said one day, like I just got in workshop. She's like, God, I just got to get my characters off the couch. Yeah. And I started laughing and she didn't, she was being lit. She just like had these characters, but they were just talking. They weren't doing anything. And I like stories where maybe it's my inner 12 year old. I want something to blow up or I want something. <laughs> you, want that you want right? that musket. Um, right? Yeah. The musket. With a, yeah. With a, with a mystery though, I found uh, you were talking John about plotting and, and sort of like outlining or not. And I've heard plotters or pantsers. Yep. Uh, the other way to put it. And I found in my first novel, which had a mystery component to it, a boy vanishes and no one knows what happened to him. I didn't know what happened to him. Uh -huh. I thought, I'll figure yeah. it out as I'm writing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So for well, me, it's hope. a way to write it because I kind of need to know. And <laughs> so I figured it because you either get bad mysteries. they You either get, um, uh, you get, oh, the butler did it. How surprising. 
<laughs> on page 50. I read the next 300 pages in the vain hope that something interesting would happen. Thank you for ruining my weekend. Or, <laughs> or you get aliens took him. That's what, what? Yeah. Random. <laughs> steer clear of those two. And I found that if I outline stuff way too much, I leave too clear of a trap. I'm afraid I want to leave too clear of a trail for a reader who'll be like, oh, that's what happened. Yeah, you want to get to the end of a good mystery and be like, I didn't see that coming, but that makes because we didn't see it coming. Yeah, that's what you see right before it happens, and you're all right. Yeah, my friend Margaret Marin, and I know John, you knew Margaret. I I loved Uh, her, she was great. Yeah, Margaret used to, we were in a writing group together, and Margaret used to say, I don't want to know what happens next because then I'll be bored. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's true. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Gosh, I wish I could write that way. You know, I I write historical fiction and I think I'm so concerned with um, hitting the right dates of things that happened in the war. Like, I I think I maybe outlined too much and it does take away some of the joy in the process for me. So that's that's very interesting to hear. But it takes away the it it does away with the anxiety that I feel every time. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like I'm my timeline's completely I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, I mean, I'm not saying my timeline always turns out correctly. Just that I, you know, I have kind of the roadmap <laughs> to go with. Um, okay, so both of you address plenty of social issues in your novels, from police corruption to the treatment of America's veterans. And in addition to creating these fast-moving plots, like we were just talking about, and these page-turning stories, you both incorporate so much heart and so much emotion into your novels. Um, So I'm wondering, has an issue that you were facing or that the world was facing ever compelled you to sit down and write a novel? Or do the issues find their way in as a part of a story where you've kind of met the characters first? I guess I'm, I guess I'm sort of wondering which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Chris, do you want to start? I'm kind of like, John, I always like to start with character Character, maybe there's a situation. I don't have a plot yet. I have an idea of a kind of story, but it's always with a character. And then as the character grows and I get to know the character and can convey that person on the page and try to get you to care about them, because to be honest, there's not that many plots in the world, but there's every person is unique. And so if I can get you to connect with a character and you care, you'll follow them through, whether it's a romance a mystery, science fiction, whatever. Um, I tend to do that first and then oftentimes issues that I maybe I care about or that I think are important or I think of this would fit really well or maybe not even think about it consciously. They just sort of appear. Um, I don't I don't tend to sit down and say I am now going to write a novel that is going to address Mm -hmm. X crisis. Um, I, you know. I, I like to think about trying to think about the history of the character and the relationships with other characters and just like in my own life, uh, your relationships with other people and your exposure to other people, you become aware of certain things, social issues, whether it has to be whether it's homophobia or racism or, you know, uh, how, what, what America has been like you know, post 9-11 or how society has changed. I mean, a big thing I think a lot of us are wrestling with is, OK, now we're in a pandemic and how do we incorporate or do we incorporate that into our mm-hmm. book? Yeah. Um, I don't know if y'all have wrestled with that. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we all did wrestle. We all wrestled with it last sure. year. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you ignore it? Uh, that's sort of what right. I did with this one. Um, do you do you incorporate it somehow? Do you like Set I don't, it in I don't know if there's writing the great pandemic novel 
the great COVID right. novel. It's not going to be me. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> apparently Jody Picot has done it though. So good exactly. on her. Yeah, I've heard, That's yeah, right. She mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. How about you? How about you, John? Do you, uh, do you generally start with an issue or do you start with, with the characters and the issues kind of appear? So um, I'm going to say character first and then issues appear, but I want to say uh, one thing about something Chris said earlier, we we're talking about genre writing and, uh, you know, why it works, why it matters, why, why people respond to it. Uh, and then I'll come back to this question of if, if I ever brought any of the, uh, you know, modern tumult of our lives into the books intentionally. Um, here, here's what I love about crime fiction, mystery, thriller, pick, pick your term. Um, people get real when stakes are high. I like to describe it as, you know, turning up the heat on a very bland looking person and cooking off all of the soft bits <laughs> that they show to the world and, and then revealing what's underneath. Right. And I think it was Jocelyn Jackson that said this, and I steal this quote and I'm sure I butcher it too, but years ago I read this and she said that the best way to introduce your um, readers to the characters you've built, to the people you've made is to put all of those characters in a room, lock the door and light one of them on fire. And and I think that's really astute because, you know, somebody's going to beat their fist bloody on the door. Somebody's going to panic and freeze and somebody hopefully is going to try to put out the fire, but you don't know until someone is actually burning what's going to happen. And so I love crime fiction because you can take these relatively sedate lives and subject them to this kind of heat that cooks away those soft bits. And we can really explore what are people going to do when the stakes are real? I mean, if it's life or death, freedom or prison, you know, family living or dying, and that is very, very real. I mean, and, and people respond to that because we can all imagine it. And hopefully we're tucked into safe lives with well-adjusted people. But, you know, it, it's always a question. What what would happen? What would I do? How would I handle that situation? And so, um, you know, genre fiction is undersold and its ability to explore what humanity will do when the chips get really down. And Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's what I like writing about. So I, I'm accused often of writing dark you know, bring my quotes in dark fiction but i, I don't really write dark I, I write about the search for light in dark places I, I like to take good people and put them into these terrible circumstances for this reason the things that make humanity great are not what we saw in the headlines they're they're the things that we all do in our daily lives all the good people in the world do in our daily lives that nobody notices you know we, we put our, someone before ourselves we sacrifice for a sibling or we you know we we give to a stranger on the street i mean pick pick whatever it is these are tiny little flashes of humanity that disappear in a bright happy world but if you take that world and make it really dim and dark those little flashes pop right i mean you see these characters that choose do i put myself mm-hmm. above my mother or my sister or do i you know screw my neighbor or help my neighbor. I mean, it, it right. It, it's, it's a really great opportunity to explore those things. So that's what I think um, genre fiction allows us to do in a really mm-hmm. meaningful way without the navel gazing that, yeah. that Chris is talking mm-hmm. about with some of the literary yeah. works. Like I don't want to read three pages of how the light is touching the dish towel in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't give a fig. I don't care. Macaroni is my dish towel scene. Yeah, yeah. It's Nick, Nick, it's now out. Yeah. Professional advice. Um, <laughs> so, like, I, I love when things happen, but the stakes are real, and it allows us to explore yeah. uh, humanity. So, in terms of the broader question of, you know, have obviously what happens in the real world affects us all. I mean, we're we're sponges. Writers are sponges. Mm-hmm. I mean, we absorb and we process. And we think about, you know, what does this do? And it comes in our dreams and it comes when we don't expect it. That's what we do. That's what we're paid to do. Um, the, the most important example I can think of where I actively chose to do it was in a novel that came out in 2016 called Redemption Road. And it was after all of the really horrible things in Ferguson and Boston and, you know, some of these these, uh, you know, cop shootings. And what bothered me, see, I was a criminal defense attorney for years and. For me, that means you wait for the facts and you judge on the facts. And whether the cop is wrong or the person who got shot is wrong, that's irrelevant until the facts are known. And yet the entire country raced to this judgment. And and pick your side. If you think cops are corrupt, they murdered an innocent kid. If you think that cops are on the good side, you know, they are being vilified for doing their job. I mean, you, you, you can look at this a thousand different ways. The point is. Nobody should be making decisions, let alone on the national stage, until the facts are known. Facts are facts and facts matter. And as an defense attorney, it just galls me when I see people jump to conclusions on either side of the political spectrum. So I wrote a scene in Redemption Road where some bad things happen in the basement of of an abandoned house where a young um, white teenage female was abducted and the two black suspects um, who abducted her were killed ostensibly by the cop first on the scene. The reason I wrote this scene the way I did is because what everybody thinks happened in that scene is exactly wrong. It doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you're on. If you think one thing or the other and you go to that, you're wrong. Nobody knows until the end of the book what really happened in that basement. And so that was a, a very conscious decision on my part to say, you know what? It matters what actually happened and you need to wait to know what happened. And I just wish that we had a little bit more patience in in all things to just be chill. And and that's really double doubly charged now. I mean, it's just the world gets crazier every year. But when I wrote it, it seemed very straightforward. It was a very simple message. Facts matter, period. Yeah. Yeah, also, that's great. Writing crime helps with, with that because you cut through when you when there's a crime, a crime is committed. It's like a violation and it can affect anybody at any time from any socioeconomic background, uh, racial, ethnic, what have you. And you can use a crime. You can use crime, whether it's abduction, whether it's murder, whether it's somebody goes missing, what have you, as a way to explore things. Because people when there's a crime committed, people ask questions and you open doors that maybe you shouldn't have opened or that were meant to be closed and you discover things. And that's a great way to, you know, even Charles Dickens did that. He was one of the most popular writers ever. And he would often write about characters who would go through the shadowy underbelly of London. And and you would, you would discover things about the character, but he was also writing about, Hey, here's part of society too. Mm-hmm. Here's something we're, here's something we need to deal with. Yeah. Um, so it's at the same time without, without, uh, without making it a sermon, yeah. you make it part of your story. 
That, that's a real. I'm sorry to, to interrupt. That, that, that's a really um, great point. I mean, it, it yeah. should and could and almost always is some sort of, I don't want to say an indictment of society, but an exploration of society. I mean, because yeah. people want the journey. They want to see places they've never been. Maybe that means, you know, 1825 South Africa, or maybe it means, you know, the London Underbelly in 1910, or maybe it means what's going on in your next door uh, neighborhood right now. I mean, but people want to experience things that they've never experienced. It's funny, you know, my um, my first couple of books became huge hits in Denmark, and I, I never understood why. And my publisher said it's because the Danes have an abiding fascination with the American South. Who knew? Huh? I, wow. I didn't write for the Danes. I didn't write for the Danes, but but apparently it's like, ooh, the American South. That's kind of fascinating. Ooh, Let's I see didn't what's know going that. there. Well, that's well, the I mean, perfect segue yeah, into my question. Agent about Danish foreign right. Okay. Well, look, he, he, made <laughs> know, right? plug, he was pretty compelling when he told me. <laughs> well, it's a perfect segue into my next question because, um, as John said, and probably a lot of the viewers don't know, we actually grew up in the same small southern town of Salisbury, North Carolina, and then just found out that Chris grew up like. 15 miles down the road, which is really bizarre. We must have all been bored in the Piedmont and it sparked our imagination or something. Um, it's pretty amazing. But I think, you know, both of you, um, or maybe I will not speak for you, but I guess my question would be, do you think that that, you know, small town Southern upbringing influenced your writing or do you work your background into your stories? Do you see that happening? Um, Chris, do you want to? Sure. Um, I moved around a lot, uh, but small towns up until we moved to Atlanta when I was 18. Mm -hmm. um, and I still remember driving into Atlanta for the first time. And and I had tried. I wasn't I wasn't like, golly, there are big buildings here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I had been in planes and I'd been to Europe. I'd, I'd traveled and stuff. I remember driving in thinking. This is an entirely different experience. Um, I think so. I think small towns, smaller towns, um, when you get a sense of community and you know people, and sometimes you're like, I wish I didn't know everybody, and I wish everybody didn't know everything about me. Um, they're a real boon for writers uh, because they're in a, in a large place like Atlanta, which is where I set some of my fiction, and I like doing that. Uh, but there's something about having a smaller, uh, isolated community where people do know each other um, and people can either help or hurt each other uh, yeah. fairly easily, uh, depending on the kind of story you're writing. Um, I think that and I think maybe the sense of wanting to, um, you know, not wanting to just stay in a small plate, but also go out and explore the world and see that. I think that that maybe that might've sparked our imagination. I know Christy, you were kind of joking about it. Maybe we were all bored in the Piedmont that fired our imaginations. Um, there might, maybe there's a little bit something to that. Uh, wanting to see what else is out there, wanting to see and imagining uh, a world that's different from where we are. I think most people can do that, but I think if you're from a smaller area, then that's, more likely to happen. I don't know. John, what do you think? So um, here's what I love about small towns uh, from a writer's perspective. And, and I've, I've, I've said this so many times. It's so true. People know your business, 
think they know your business or think they have the right to know your business. And it makes it so fascinating because it takes motivations and backstories and questions and mysteries and all these to a whole different level. Right. I mean, it goes, it can go back generations, especially in a small Southern town. Like my, my parents, uh, I lost my mother recently, but she lived in a house that was built in 1872. Um, and adjacent to her was a house that the same family had lived in since it was built in the 1850s. The parlor still had the original wallpaper, and they, oh they wouldn't allow it to be taken out. Same family in this house, you know, wow. antebellum, same original wallpaper. And, you know, the thing about small town South, and this is what I love about it. If you, if you think about the difference between the South and the North and, and the you know formative years, you know, the Northerners, they're battling the elements and they're shut up in their houses with their fires and they're, they're separated and good fences make good neighbors. And I lived in New England. I know that that's true. People believe Robert Frost quote. But, but in the South, you know, you're sitting on your porch, you're waiting for that breeze. And how long can you ignore the people that walk by or sitting next to you? And so th- there's this there's this real sense of I know you. Yeah. And if I don't know you, I'm going to know you. I don't know. I, for me, it's just so rich. And you combine that with the fact that in these small southern towns, because of the history of slavery and all these other things, most of these towns have a very clear division between haves and have nots. Yep. Yeah. Right. I mean, like you can have a beautiful antebellum mansion that people from out of state would pay a gajillion dollars for. And then if you go a block behind it, you know, there's acres and acres filled with these small, really poor houses that were probably built on the foundations of slave quarters. I mean, but they're right there. I mean, it's like right there, like the richest people in these very wealthy Southern towns can be right next to these very poor neighborhoods. And I think it's fascinating, man. And I love to explore these ideas because I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a political thinker at all. I mean, I have my own opinions and I like to follow it, but I love the idea that people believe that if you have money, you have value. And if you have no money, you don't. And so a lot of my stories will involve these turns of circumstances where the one that everybody thinks has got to be right because he's from the good family on the right side of the tracks is actually the a-hole. And it's the, you know, the guy that nobody ever saw coming who really has got it going on. And, and I don't make that a shtick. I don't want it to ever be a shtick, but it's just an exploration of what the expectations are in small towns and how we carry the passion of the present and, and what it's going to look like going forward. I mean, it, it's, it's rich soil for those of us that do what we do. It's rich soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I didn't grow up in a small town and I've written about Darn it. it. Daddy. Dang it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I blew it. When you you yeah. yeah. How did you get to be a writer? I grew up in Philadelphia <laughs> and Riverdale. So, but, but I write about it because I, you know, you guys, y'all complain sometimes, you know, that everybody's in everybody's business. And I just think it's, I love to read about it. I love yeah. to I just, that I did it. Yeah. Yeah. I just love it. I don't know why. Like, I think that makes me weird. And like, even growing up, people would be like, no, I'm never I'm coming back it. here. And mm-hmm. I'd always be like, I, I cannot wait to come back here. I didn't. You know, the irony is that like two thirds of the people that were like, well, I cannot wait to get out of here are like living back home and I'm not. And I always <laughs> wanted to move home. So, you know, <laughs> what happened there? But 
I hear the Salisbury in you, Christy. Uh, I hear it in your voice. I know. I mean, I'll tell you what, though. Atlanta Atlanta is from Salisbury. Yeah, no, we have our own. Best version of a small town. Uh, You you go a mile away from here, and you are. I live in a nice suburb in Atlanta near Chastain Park, and you go. you go a couple of miles due south of here and you are in what I know in the 90s and early 2000s was basically an open air heroin market. Yeah. And it's right down literally like not very far. Um, again, it's this it's a city sized version of the small town yep. dynamics, John, that you were talking about. And uh, it's just a slightly bigger canvas. Yeah. I can uh, remember I when that. I started writing um, mysteries. I wanted, I was, I was intimidated by the size of Atlanta. How can I write about Atlanta? I wanted to set a book here. And then finally I thought, you know what? Atlanta isn't one big city. It's little neighborhoods, right? So it's Chastain Park and it's Decatur and it's West Side and it's um, Avondale, Alpharetta and it's the airport. And so once I could, I needed a, I needed a piece of it that I could get my hands around. And once I did that, you know, then I could understand it and then I could, put my put my characters in it and and you know then they could do what they needed to do okay chris and john both y'all i feel like in many ways tonight you've given us a master class in writing and plotting i i feel like i i wanted to take notes but i can't look at the screen and take notes at the same time so but i want to narrow it down to a writing tip if y'all will please each give us one of your favorite writing tips Chris, you want to start us off? Sure. And this is more, there are all kinds of things you can learn about technique and about how to draw characters and write really compelling settings without going on for three pages about the sunlight hitting the tea towel. <laughs> I'm going to do that tomorrow. I, I can narrow that down to half a page. Then I'm going to send it to John. That's what I'm going to do. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, will, I, I will tell you, if, if in terms of writing, the only reason I am a published writer, literally the only reason is that I didn't quit. Mm. I wanted to do this since I was 13. And I don't know if you can tell by looking at me, but 13 was a while ago. <laughs> and there were all sorts of times when I could have, I, I had a, I, I found a career I love. I am married to the love of my life. I have two no. boys. I have a dog, a nice house. Like I, life is good. And I could just, you know, that's, I have a gracious plenty. That's, that's fine. This writing thing, I tried it and it didn't work. There were so many times I could have quit. If you have anybody who is not a best friend or a blood relation who reads something that you've written and says something positive about it, if you have that, don't quit. Because if you quit, nothing will happen. I can't guarantee something will, but the only reason I'm published is because I was persistent. It's one of the few things I'm really, really stubborn about. And it worked. It took longer than I'd like. And I wasn't consistent about it. But, you know, don't give up because so many people who could write go, you know, what? I tried and it didn't work and I just I'm done. Um, and that, that is, that is the only reason I'm here is because I just, I stuck with it and I had an, along the way, I had enough people and enough times, strangers, friends, what have you, who gave me enough encouragement. You know, I got a line from an editor saying, not for me, but send me something else. If you get it, things like that, right. That don't, don't quit that. That's my, that's not, that's not deep and it's not uh, original, but it's great. 
It's probably the most important thing. Yeah. Chris, Chris, your students are really lucky. I've just been thinking that all night as you talk. But really, how wonderful to have a teacher. They really are, aren't they? (laughs) I I had great teachers in high school, but... I'm the lucky one. It's 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 awesome. Good good for good for them to have the exposure to somebody yeah. like you. That's awesome. Thank you. All right. How about you, John? Well, I think Chris is is on to something. Um, so let, let's talk about uh, embracing the lifestyle of writer more than like you know show don't tell. I mean, you, we can all buy the books that tell us how to avoid yeah. the common fit, the common pitfalls. Um, all right. So Chris is talking about finding someone. Um, other than your spouse or significant other, or whatever, that can actually read your books and say nice things and taking that seriously. I would, I would refine that based on my own experiences and say that the most important thing is to find someone um, that can deliver critical um, perspective in a manner that you will trust and not breaking your heart at the same time, because yeah. There is no more insecure creature than an unpublished writer. I think I'm safe in saying that. I mean, it's uh, we're all putting our heart and soul onto the page and we're waiting for someone, you know, to anoint us and say you're worthy and come into the club. And that's a hit or miss thing. Right. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes it's just a bad day for the right editor or the wrong day for the wrong editor. Who knows? But like my, I'm blessed with my wife. She, she is, um, she is capable of reading what I write in its rawest form and saying, you're losing me, uh, or this is awesome. And if she says one or the other, I mean, I take it as gospel. So it's, it's really important to have that, but, but keep in mind too, though, that you have to be careful about how you open yourself to opinions because we are all such insecure creatures. We are vulnerable. I mean, we are, it's just like you pull your chest open and you say, here's my heart. What do you think about it? I mean, that, that is a terrifying yeah. thing. Yes. And there are people that will submarine you yes. for their own yes. reasons. Yep. Yep. And, and, and I'll never forget it. When I, I, I wrote two failed novels before my first was published. Um, and when I decided to write the one that got published, I quit my law practice and I had a stay-at-home wife and a brand new baby. And I told everybody in this little small town we were talking about that this is what I was doing. And the reason I did that was because, A, I'm just a forthright, honest SOB. But secondly, because I knew that I would be held accountable. If I said I'm quitting my law practice with these stay-at-home dependents, I'm going to finish a book. I mean, I've got to finish a book. And I showed up at the library every day and I wrote the damn book. But people would accost me. I mean, literally accost me, put their finger in my chest. I'm talking about surgeons and district attorneys and saying, who the hell do you think you are? Wow. Think wow. Next on Grisham? I would love to quit my job and fix my life. What makes you so special? And my response to them was like, I'm willing to roll the dice. And so wow. I think that the naysayers, they naysay for their own reasons. Yes. And you need to understand that the naysayers that, and look, my mother, God rest her soul was one of them. She said, do not quit your day job. You will never get published. Oh, wow. She was saying that is a protect. She was trying to protect me. Sure. Yeah. Difficult industry. But the people that are really just eager to tell you you can never do it are the ones that have given up on their own dreams and moved on. And now they're wondering if that was a mistake or the right thing to do. And if you fail, if you walk away, they're right. And if you succeed, they're wrong. So they have a vested interest. You got to understand 
in the early days, you are your own best cheerleader, your own best friend. And if you do not care with the kind of passion that Chris is talking about, like you got, I mean, you got to do it. You got to do it. You got to see it. If you don't have that, don't waste your time. But if you have that, yeah. I don't know how many times it took Chris, but I wrote two full novels before I got published. Wow. And after two Edgars and a few bestsellers, I wrote a, another one that I had to throw away before I went back and wrote my fifth bestselling novel. It's 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 not a given. No. It's a constant struggle and you just got to love it. That's it. Yeah. Well, Chris and John, if you wouldn't mind sticking around for just a few minutes, we have one additional question for you, but we have a couple of announcements first. All right, y'all, a quick reminder about our Writer's Block podcasts. We'll always post links under announcements each time a new one goes out. A new episode launches every single Friday. And this past week, Ron talked to Kim Ritchie and Gretchen Peters about songwriting as storytelling. And y'all, I listened to it and it is so fascinating. And part two is coming up in a couple of weeks, but these are two of the most award-winning songwriters in Nashville. And it was amazing. And then this coming week, Ron and I both talked to Kimmery Martin about medical fiction. It's awesome. That podcast is so great. It's such a cool thing to be involved in. Speaking of cool things to be involved in, if you are not hanging out with us yet in the Friends and Fiction Official Book Club, you are missing out. You guys, they are at 9.9 thousand members. They are almost at 10,000. Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner are just doing an amazing job. I talked to them right before the show. They're working so hard. They're doing such great things. Um, And this Friday at 7, 7 p.m. Eastern, they're going to have Ron Block on for their special happy hour. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be revealing their January, February, and March 2022 book picks. And they will have book recommendations galore for you. So join them this Friday. Join the group. Um, They're just fabulous. We love them. Yeah. And make sure since we're put making you put things on your calendar, make sure you join us next week, next Wednesday, right here at seven. We're going to host Cynthia Dupree. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Cynthia Dupree Sweeney, author of Good Company. Then in two weeks, join us as we welcome Maria Amparo Escondon of LA Weather, which I read and is fabulous. And if you're ever wondering about our schedule, it's always on the Friends in Fiction website. And the fall schedule, soon to be winter, is on our Facebook banner. And I know we talked about it at the front end, but don't forget about the amazing reading journals. And at Oxford Exchange, you can have an entire Christmas bundle with our three Christmas books and a journal. We love sharing the love for all our fellow authors with new releases every Tuesday. So we want to give a shout out to Anissa Armstrong for all her time and energy with our launch day love every single Tuesday on the Facebook page. It's a lot going on. Okay. Chris and John, you are up. We have one <laughs> last question we want to ask you and quickly, cause we're running out of time, but um, what were the values around reading and writing when you were growing up? John, do you want to start us? My earliest memory of uh, long fiction was from my father who was a, uh, the old school doctor, you know, training at Duke and working 40 hours on and coming home for eight hours. And in those eight hours, he would find 10 minutes to come down at, at, when I was seven years old and read to me my first chapter book. And and that was formative. And, and I 
I mean, I can remember being eight, 10, 12, 15, staying up until two, three in the morning because I couldn't put down a book. So start early. Um, it, it's a gift. And, and I think we all agree with that, uh, especially in this day of just like, you know, clickbait, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. eye porn. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just like TikTok's not the same. I mean, it's all about imagination yeah. and, and deep involvement. And it, it, if it comes early, it sticks. That's it. I love that. Yeah. Always, always had a book. My mother would say I learned how to read before I learned how to walk. She's not telling the truth, but she's my mom. She can get away with that. Yeah. Uh, my grandfather was an English teacher before uh, he ran a shop for 50 years in Cashers, North Carolina. And he always had wonderful stories and told me about books. And uh, I've, I've loved to read ever since I was a little kid and was always encouraged to. And, you know, I'd, try to do the same with my own children. So that's awesome. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, Chris, John, thank you so much for being oh, such incredible so guests. We had so that. much fun with y'all. We learned a lot and um, we know our viewers had a great time too. So thank you and happy holidays. And uh, we hope to see you again soon. Thank, thank you. Y'all. Y'all. That was amazing. Thank you. Happy great holidays to all y'all. You thank too, you. Chris. Now, everybody, don't go anywhere. Stay right here for our Talking Turkey with Butterball after show. And don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We are live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you won't miss a thing. Plus, you'll have access to special short clips that you're going to love. Be sure to come back next week, same time, same place, as we welcome Cynthia De- I I just lost her name, Dupree Sweeney. <laughs> Welcome to the Talkin' Turkey Butterball After Show, where Talkin' Turkey doesn't just mean food. Um, I'm Patty, are you the Butterball? <laughs> you just got off the Peloton, so I know it's not you. <laughs> no, I am me. Sean's drinking us all the Butterballs. It's, it's very, that's very politically correct, Sean. <laughs> well, ladies, what a show. Oh, my goodness. I feel like we got like oh, a... My. Gosh. Oh my gosh, right? Oh, great. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. So I could have talked to them for two hours. Their stories and their advice and the way they look yeah. at mysteries. What do you think, Mary Kay, about is, is is that the way that you see mystery too? Was that like did that ring true? I never heard. I loved I love the thing about what's happening and what has what's yeah, about to happen too. and what's gonna I happen. That. But I never heard. Yeah, I've never heard that distinction before. So that was that was really great. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was a really great show. I'd never heard that either. And I was really fascinated by that. And even like doing this tonight, I was like, okay, like do I classify them as thriller writers? You know, yeah. and I feel like classification of books right now is like kind yeah. of this like hot topic. And I'm like, is that is that right? And and is there is somebody gonna be mad if you say the wrong thing? You know, it's really funny how Well, when really their press are. kids say they write thrillers, then we can say they write thrillers. Yeah. <laughs> But Christy, it made me think too, like we all talk about how to, um, what, what is considered historical and what isn't. And he said it was set in 1972. And I've heard that time period being called historical. So I feel like this whole idea of how do we put it in these little, it's a thriller, but it's historical, but it's a mystery, but right. Yep. 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 Good point. So interesting. Well, they're great guys. Fantastic. And, and, yeah. And both so um, interesting. Yeah. With their backstories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just can't How believe they both wrote that, stories when they were like, it, it as a yeah. school project, yeah. they both wrote 
a, a story instead of just doing the project. I yeah, just didn't have that like moment. Like I don't ever remember. I mean, I always like to write, but I don't remember having like this moment of like, Oh, I mean, not until I was like, you know, 25 or something. So um, anyway, that's interesting, but um, okay. We have to talk about, we're here to talk Turkey. Mm-hmm. And last week was, you know, the big Turkey day. So yeah. I loved all your photos and watching you cook and our group text and all of that. So how did it go? And bigger question, who spatchcocked their Turkey? I'll let the spatchcocker go first. That would be you. We're, we're officially addressing you that way from now on, the spatchcocker. spatchcocker. I did not spatchcock the turkey. Tom spatchcocked the turkey. <laughs> there, he is. Is. there he is. There he is. We he, consider um, you as one. You are, <laughs> no, we are not one. <laughs> you were you a spatchcock enabler. We'll, we'll say um, that. Yeah. You know, You're he, spatchcock spouse. He watched Vivian. the Vivian Howard episode and he's like, well, I can do that. Awesome. I mean, he's a fisherman. And so he knows how to, you know, he cleans fish and Clean he things. likes, he's, yeah. he's, he, he does the, the meat in our family. He brings the meat. Forget <laughs> I said that. That can go bad really quick. Wow. That went wrong right fast. Okay. Over to you, Peach. Over to you, Peach. Oh my gosh. I'm shoveling the spatchcock over to you. (laughs) We did not spatchcock the turkey, but it was amazing. We had 16 family members, which sounds overwhelming, but it was a really special time. So um, we went to the mountains. We did it different this year. We've never done that. Went and rented a couple of houses and had fires all the time and hiked and ate and ate and ate. And I might start fasting tomorrow. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Kristen, what about you? Uh, We went down and spent Thanksgiving with my in-laws in Fort Lauderdale. So we did not have fires because that would have been a poor idea. Melted. Fort Lauderdale, we would have melted. Not a good idea. Um, It was great. We we did a turkey. We d- well, I walked. Let, let's let's be let's be clear. I don't oh, know unless right. he did a turkey trot. I I, I, I didn't. Us. I well, I would have betrayed you if I had run. Jason betrayed you because my husband Jason, <laughs> full of betrayal, because not only did he run, but he came in third in his age group. So like That's he ran just, fast, which I, I look at as a betrayal too. I totally inexcusable. Okay, so Chris Swan just said runner. he's putting spatchcock in his next book. <laughs> Okay. I, can't I, wait to say, I claim that one. I have already used spatchcock in a book. I didn't That's even really? realize it was like that big of a, yeah. And I got so many emails asking for how to spatchcock a chicken and I had to have Will like write it up. I just thought it was like, I mean, I don't cook. So I just thought it was like a thing that everyone did and <laughs> he would always spatchcock the chicken. And I was like, Oh, that's a thing. And I wrote about it and people were like, I need this recipe. It was hilarious. Okay, finish, Kristen. I'm sorry. They just oh no, 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 not at all. There wasn't that much more to say. Just we walked the turkey trot. Um, Mm -hmm. It was great. We pulled Noah in a wagon. I had a little headband um, that had turkeys on it, (laughs) so I would have been like the poster child for Butterball, except that the headband blew off in the first three minutes and landed in a gutter. So then I just had a soggy headband, um, which was not good. But I did complete an entire 5K on Thanksgiving morning and then stuffed my face accordingly afterwards. So that's good. Yep. I mean. I, I 
I'm impressed with that. Like really very <laughs> impressed. And little Will was super jealous. Like I was like, oh my gosh, Kristen is doing this turkey trot. And Will was like, I want to go do a turkey trot. And I was like, don't look out the window. Cause I'm sure they're like coming by the, the door, like right now, like don't, don't, no one look and tell him that he could be running right now. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, I think that's awesome. That I really do. We had both families, my family and Will's family, which was really, really fun. And um, we do that every year. It's kind of become a tradition and it's just, it's great. And it's kind of, it's so funny how they've like become this one like conglomeration of family. I mean, I just love it. It's like everybody's family has grown. So um, I guess, you know, nobody wants to cook. So if we'll, we'll host, then they'll come to us. Maybe that's what it is. So. Well, that's <laughs> we used to, you know, uh, my family and Tom's family lived just a few miles apart. So we used to go home to St. Pete every year for Thanksgiving. And our mothers had dueling Thanksgiving dinners. Like they no insisted, way. we have to cook our dinner. So we yeah. were with two little kids shuttling from house to house. And yeah. and my late mother-in-law got so mad at my mother because we would get over to her house and we would be too full to eat anything. Yeah. <laughs> If my mother said we're eating at four, Dot would say, well, we're eating at three. But you never <laughs> sat down to eat at three. And so finally, one oh year, God. we just said, enough. We're going to rent. And this is what we did. We rented a house out at the beach, big enough for both families to come. Yep. And that. Um, that did away with the du- dueling turkey days. That's awesome. So That's funny. a smart idea. Yeah. Taking notes yeah, for next like, year. Yeah. It sounds like a really great short story, to be honest. It would be. Yeah. We used to have these funny. really killer games of Trivial Pursuit. Mm-hmm. And someone always left left the table in a furor yep. because <laughs> they knew, absolutely knew, that the Trivial Pursuit answer was wrong. In the box. Yes. In the box. Yes. Even That's though you show, the, show it to them. Mm-hmm. I, we showed him my brother and he go, I don't care. It's still wrong. That's wrong. So, that sounds like I, pre-internet. This is pre-internet. So you couldn't look it up and prove that he was wrong. So I just have to mark this moment because Patty, just let's recap. You suggested a Thanksgiving short story. Uh-huh. Mary Kay glossed over it and moved on. And so next year I will be anticipating mm-hmm. a Thanksgiving novella from you. Is yeah. this, was this the moment? About that we can? Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanksgiving dinners. You know, I was actually, it's so funny when she said that, I was thinking the exact same thing, Kristen. I was like, this is going to be a novel. Like next year, we're going to have the turkey novel. I feel like this happens last year. Yeah. Um, But I, but I said this to you guys earlier that I had this idea for a Christmas book and I've like totally forgotten it. I'm not writing, I'm not writing another Christmas book, but I had this idea that I thought was like really great. And now I'm remembering that I got it last week on the show. So I'm going to have to go oh, back and watch funny. the what show last that's week. Funny. I don't remember. You can't remember. You can't remember. So I'm going to have to go watch the show from last week to see if it like jogs my memory. Cause it was that's something funny. that like I was, it was some story I was telling and I was like, Oh, I <laughs> about that. Um, I, I do have a Turkey um, anecdote if you care to hear it. Oh, we would like to. Mm-hmm. I okay. would, but real quick, Sean just asked if Butterball published turkey novellas. Maybe. Maybe. You know, we should look into that. We really should. <laughs> we could package them in the turkey. Yes. <laughs> Protected in plastic. In like the crazy. little waterproof bag instead of the gizzards. It <laughs> could be about a million yes. dollar idea. Novella. Okay. So years ago, uh, I mean, like, uh, 30 years ago. That's awesome. The 
spatchcock one only comes like in the adult, the adult novella, the adult turkeys. So my mother and my brothers ran a family restaurant in downtown St. Pete. And so we would go down at Thanksgiving and we got pressed into service helping because they were open on Thanksgiving and, and a lot of elderly people would come for their, you know, $7 Thanksgiving dinner. And so my mother was, she didn't know anything about running a restaurant, but she did it anyway. And so of course we, the day, the day before Thanksgiving, we were, she had all these big giant electric roasters that she was roasting turkeys in. We ran out. So she and I ran, I think, to Publix or someplace. And um, the restaurant had, we had like these green aprons. And we literally had on like white shirts and green aprons. We ran to the to Publix and we're digging through the, you know, the big things of turkeys and loading them into the shopping carts. And we are wearing these aprons and people are stopping us. They think we're the butterball turkey people. Oh <laughs> and um, they're saying... <laughs> Hey, do you have to thaw that turkey? We're like, yes, you have to thaw a turkey. What's wrong with you? It's hilarious. They thought you were the tall Because we had on just assumed that we knew what we were doing. What we didn't tell them that was we took it home and we thawed them in a giant bathtub of hot water and we kept changing the hot water. Oh, my gosh. That is going to be the cutest short story. I can't wait to we read can't it. Wait to read it. I, I, can't, I can't wait for you to read it. sounds like now. <laughs> I know our readers would gobble. Yeah, there we go. Somebody oh, beat me to it. This is amazing. I love it. We have the best <laughs> readers in the world. Okay. Yeah, well, the best. I'm hungry now that we've been doing all this turkey talk. Yeah. I don't know about y'all, but I think. Well, that was a great night, you guys. I love that. So yeah. Yeah. So good. It's always, it's always fun. Um, and before we leave to see y'all next week, just a reminder, the Butterball is celebrating the 40th anniversary of its Turkey Talk line. Mm -hmm. They started as just a phone line, and now they have a website and a Facebook page, and they're on Instagram and TikTok. Y'all, I'm not on TikTok. I got to get with the program. Me neither. Me neither. I might have to join TikTok because I just have this idea in my head of what the Butterball TikTok videos are like, and it's really yeah. amazing. So I think I need to see if I'm right. But you can call in with any of your turkey questions now through the end of December. So give them a call or check out their website. And if you, um, and you can always Google it or go to butterball.com. Or check right. me at Publix. I'll be hanging out in green. Yeah, <laughs> or hit your local Publix. <laughs> Kathy will be the one in the apron giving out free turkey advice. But you know, you get what you pay for. Terrible <laughs> turkey advice. Use the bathtub. Horrible turkey advice. Don't take my turkey advice. <laughs> call, the call the tip line. Exactly. The call talk the line. Yep. Oh my God. That is Bye, y'all. All right. Good night, y'all. Good night, Good night everybody. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.